Jacob, welcome. We're glad you're here today, and we're glad that you've given your heart and life to Christ. And I, I've got two questions for you, okay? The first is, do you trust Jesus as your Savior? And what do you believe about Jesus? Upon your profession of faith in Him, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you'd like to come to the Lord today or follow Jesus in baptism, you can do that today. Just come forward today, let a staff member know, and we will arrange that. Everything's prepared. We just need you. However, there's a choice that you're going to have to make, and that is, am I going to follow the world or am I going to follow Jesus Christ? Oftentimes, that decision has got to be made. Uh, the decision to follow Christ and to publicly identify with Him is increasingly unpopular in some quarters. I don't think the whole world is intentionally uh, antagonistic towards Christ, but increasingly they aren't. It reminds me of Ruth Graham, uh, Billy Graham's wife, who heard of the Russian cosmonaut who was uh, in outer space, and he said, I've been there. They say God lives out there, and when I was there, I didn't see him. And Ruth Graham responded, well, if he had stepped outside of that spaceship without his spacesuit, he would have seen God real quickly. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say that when you're in the protective custody, if I can put it that way, of a spacesuit and spaceship. Otherwise, you'd see God. Uh, speaking of Billy Graham, in fact, the truth is, is that not everyone was um, uh, appreciated Dr. Graham's ministry. In fact, there was one person just a few years ago that said, more harm has been done by that one man to the cause of Christ than by anyone else. Now, if you've been on Twitter and social media and some other places, you have found people that are antagonistic to the faith, atheists and agnostics and others that have made those criticisms of Dr. Graham. But this person was off to the far right, far further than anyone in this room. And so he got it from every quarter. That's oftentimes what you have to do when you take a stand for Jesus Christ. Sometimes, however, the opposition from the world is a little more personal. Reminds me of Lee Strobel, the uh, former atheist journalist out of Chicago who came to Christ. When he was a boy, his birth terribly disappointed his daddy. Absolutely disappointed him and made him angry to the point where uh, he was terribly angry with the son all through his childhood and adolescence. And one time Lee lied to him, and his daddy confronted him about it, and he finished his conversation by saying, I don't have enough love for you to fill up this pinky finger. As you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll find here in Hebrews 11, Moses was in a similar situation. Moses had some serious opposition from the world. And it wasn't just an impersonal world. It wasn't an unidentified world. It happened to be the world of his own family, which happened to be a royal family, Pharaoh, and the entire court. In Hebrews chapter 11, we find that here. Now, what the author of Hebrews does here 
is that he takes and condenses Exodus chapter 1 all the way to Exodus chapter 14. And instead of looking at it through a microscope, he looks at it through a telescope. And that is essentially the story of everything from Moses' birth to him leading the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus. Moses was born... And Pharaoh had commanded the death of all the Hebrew children. He was intimidated by their growth, and totalitarian governments all over the world are intimidated by the growth of the Christian faith. And so you're going to find through the decades more and more conflict, especially south of the equator, in totalitarian nations as there's growth in the Christian faith. There was a great awakening in 1904 that ushered in a great missionary movement, and it continues south of the equator in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America. Well, that's what happened with Moses. The growth of the Hebrew children of the nation of Israel intimidated the Pharaoh, so to stymie that, he commanded the death of the Hebrew boys. But Moses' parents resisted Pharaoh, and they did much what Noah did. They built an ark for uh, Moses out of bulrushes and covered it with pitch like Noah did the ark and placed him in it about the time Pharaoh's daughter was with her maidens down by the banks of the river. And that little ark that Moses was in just sailed on, and at at the right time, it appears an angel pinched him, and he uh, cried out. And it stirred the maternal instincts of Pharaoh's daughter, and she adopted him. Well, she didn't want to raise him on her own, and so she had to enlist someone to help her as a nanny, as a nurse, and Moses' mother shows up to take the job. And Moses comes up in the wisdom and the nurture and the um, uh, intellect and the royal court of Egypt. He does that, but God gets on his heart. And he hears the cry of the Hebrew children because they've been put into slavery. And God comes to rescue them through Moses. But Moses got ahead of God, and Moses ended up killing a man. And he fled to the desert on the backside of the Midian desert for 40 years. And after 40 years, God visited him again and called him again and said, Moses, it's time to go back, and it's time to do my will and lead Israel out of Egypt. And so he gives a number of excuses, which were typical of Egypt and typical of our day, in fact. And then he eventually ends up confronting Pharaoh. Well, you know, Pharaoh doesn't listen. A few do, especially on the first confrontation. And God has to work him over with 10 different plagues. The final plague is the death of the firstborn of everything. The firstborn of every flock, the firstborn of every herd, and the firstborn of every home. And God tells Israel, if you will, as families, if you will sacrifice a lamb without blemish and put its blood on the doorpost and the lintel, so you've got everything covered vertically and you've got everything covered horizontally, then when the death angel comes to take the life of the firstborn, I will pass over your home. And that's what Israel did. And so... They put the blood of an innocent, unblemished lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And the angel passed over the homes of all the Israelite homes, but he did not pass over the Egyptian homes or the flocks or the herds. And there was a great outcry in Egypt, and Pharaoh finally capitulated, and he collapsed, and he melted before the wrath of God, and he let Israel go. But in no time he changes his mind. And Israel, by this time, has made it to the shores of the Red Sea. And in a moment, they discovered that Pharaoh's army is breathing down their neck. And Pharaoh has changed his mind. He hardened his heart so badly that God 
said, that's enough. I've offered you grace enough. And so God began to harden his heart to where he could not change his mind. Sometimes people get that way. They sent away their day of grace. And so Pharaoh chases uh, Moses and the Israelite army all the way to the banks of the Red Sea. And there, the Israelites cry out and think, oh my goodness, I wish we'd stayed in Egypt. We should have never followed this man. And Moses says in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, something that's very unusual. It's not what any of us would do or think of in a time of leadership, in a time of crisis. He said, be silent. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he took his staff and he hit the Red Sea and it parted. And they walked along on dry land. And that was the definitive act in the history of Israel. Still celebrated even to this day. We celebrate something similar, but have transitioned it on, uh, because of Jesus' command to the Lord's Supper. That's our Passover. And they pass through on dry land. Pharaoh tries to do so as well. But he's not been cleansed by the blood. And so he and his army are swallowed up in the Red Sea. Well, that is the background of this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse number 23, where by faith, Moses resisted conformity to his hostile world. Now you can imagine the hostility of the royal court. This is family he's resisting. Powerful family, well-connected family, well-armed family, and he resists by faith the pressure to conform to his royal hostile world. And we begin reading of that in verse number 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, you can resist conformity to your hostile world. And that's true whether it's in your workplace, in your neighborhood, whether it happens to be even in your own family. If you'll walk with God by faith, you can resist conformity to a hostile world. You can resist a declension, a downgrade of your faith if you will walk with God by faith. And I want us to see this in several stages of Moses' life. And the first one is this. A nurturing family. Verses 23 through 26 make this clear. Dwight Pentecost, the commentator from um, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, argues and tries to explain that historians of Egypt believe that Moses was actually in line to the throne. Now, it's a convoluted and it's a complicated path there, but uh, Pharaoh did not have a son to inherit the throne who was capable of doing so. He had one, but because of some mental disabilities, he could not. But Pharaoh had a daughter, and this happened to be Moses' adoptive mother. And she was going to arrange a marriage between him and a royal, uh, a royal daughter so that Moses could get to the throne. And about that time, God comes through and calls 
Moses. So Moses was groomed for the throne, but he refused it. Why did he refuse it? Look at verse number 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Moses later in life, at the right time, resisted the throne because his parents had resisted Pharaoh. The faith that Moses had was not the first act of faith in his family. Oh no. Moses' faith was subsequent to the faith of his own parents. His parents had faith to stand against Pharaoh, so Moses had faith to stand against the throne. In other words, what the parents believed became the faith of the son. They said no to Pharaoh, and he said no to Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to build kids just like Moses' parents built Moses. How in the world do we build kids who have that kind of faith? who are able to stand against the hostile compromise of the world. And not to become angry or embittered at it, but to do so with a sweet and tender spirit, but a bold spirit. How do we build kids like that? Well, some people would expect the church to provide activities, and some would put that responsibility entirely and completely upon the student minister at a church. Ladies and gentlemen, our research shows from Steve Parr and Tom Kreitz in the book, Why They Stay, and other works, not just that one, that the number one factor in building kids into faithful adults is not the church, is not the youth minister, but the parents. The parents are the number one instrument in doing so. In fact, where you do not have church programs and where you do not have a student minister in a local church, you can still have faithful kids when the parents Follow God by faith. And there are three things that they've got to do by faith. One is teach the Scripture in home. The only time kids are exposed to the Word of God, if the only time kids are exposed to the Word of God is in the local church, you just about guarantee they will collapse when the day of pressure and temptation comes. It's got to be taught in the home. So do all you can to teach the Word of God in your home. Well, how do I start? Well, take this message. Take some notes and cover the introduction on Monday in family devotions. Cover the first point on Tuesday. Cover the second point on, uh, well, come to Wednesday night church. Cover the second point on Thursday. Cover the third point on Friday. And do the conclusion on Saturday, and we'll fill them up on Sunday. Teach the Word of God in your home. If parents are not teaching their children the Word of God in their home, they're just about guaranteeing that their kids will collapse in the day of struggle. So teach the Word of God in home. Teach Scripture in home. But then attend Sunday school and worship and the midweek service. That's the mark of parents who make a big difference in their kids. They set an example, but that's not all. There's a third thing. Make service your priority. Be involved in the local church, not only to make yourself feel good. That doesn't make hardly a good impression on kids at all. And kids, I don't know if you know this or not, but they have an automatic fake detector. They do. They can detect when parents are seeking and, and involved in a local church just to make themselves feel good and make themselves feel better or look good. 
Do not do that. Don't merely attend. Instead, be involved in a local church in order to serve Christ and to get involved with God's people and with people of the world on behalf of Jesus Christ. In other words, mere attendance makes very little difference in the lives of kids. Well, Moses' parents had faith and it surfaces at the moment of challenge in the life of Moses, if you want to stand for Christ in a hostile world, and if you want kids who stand for Christ in a hostile world, you've got to be more than a casual observer and attender. You've got to be all in. Would you today, during our invitation time, decide that if you're a parent, you're going to give your all to Jesus Christ and live for Him, even in service in the local church? But there's a second thing. Not only the stage of nurturing family, but Moses had a stage where he was a nervous fugitive. A number of years ago, I was uh, doing a little bit of writing, and I was sitting at my desk, and I had logged into a Southern Baptist ministry called the Evangelism Response Center. And that is, whenever there is... Um, uh, whenever the uh, phone number to this evangelism response center appears before someone and they want to come to know Christ, they would simply call the phone number and talk to a live counselor. And uh, every year, anywhere between 6,000 to 28,000 people would turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. It depended on how often we manned the phones when Billy Graham was doing a crusade or whenever his shows were on the television. We would get a flurry of phone calls anytime he appeared on television. Um, and so this number was published all throughout the United States. Uh, we would offer this service to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. We'd offered it to Love Worth Finding with Adrian Rogers, uh, to Dr. Stanley, and to some others as well. And so anytime they preached and shared the gospel and someone wanted to come to know Christ, the phone would ring. Well, I logged in one day, and a young lady called, and I shared the gospel with her, and I shared my testimony with her, and she said, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that first time I've ever been called beautiful. Of course, it was over the phone. So um, anyway, uh, and I assured her, God can forgive. God loves you. I said, in fact, there, there's some remarkable acts of forgiveness in the Bible. Moses and David and the apostle Paul all had one thing in common, or actually two, and that is each of them had conspired or participated in a murder. Moses did so in Exodus 2. David did with Uriah in 2 Samuel 11. Paul says he voted for the death of Christians. And I said, the second thing they had in common is that God forgave them all. Well, I, I was expecting to hear some relief and rejoicing on the other end of the phone line. And I was absolutely stunned when the whole atmosphere of the conversation changed and she became offended and became angry and became ugly and could not believe the audacity that I had to say God would even forgive a murderer. And yet He does. You know, some people want forgiveness for themselves. They think they're entitled to it, but don't want it for others. Can you imagine what Moses faced when he returned and came back to the court of Pharaoh? This is his family. He grew up with these people. They were aware that he had murdered someone in haste, in defense of an Israelite, but in haste had taken justice into his own hands. Can you imagine the ridicule and the reproach? Can you imagine the regret that Moses experienced for 40 years 
on the backside of the Midian Desert. He missed out on God's will for his life for 40 years because of his sin. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, look what the text says in verse 27. By faith, he forsook Egypt. Now, later, he would physically leave in the Exodus. Here, I believe it's referring to his heart. He broke ties with Egypt. He quit counting their opinion as something that was significant to him. He quit thinking that their evaluation of him was important. He forsook them and their priority in his life. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. In other words, when Moses appeared back before Pharaoh, he did not let the sins of his past keep him from the blessing of God's future for his life. And you don't have to either. Some of you today are trembling and bothered and nervous and ashamed of things that you've done and you simply can't get the memory out of your mind. Can I tell you what you're probably doing? And I want to give you some hope and some help today. Number one, the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cleanse you from all sin. Every bit of it. The grace that God had to forgive Moses and David and Paul is as operative and as powerful today as it was the day they first experienced it. And you can have it today if you'll turn to Jesus Christ. Oh, it's a wonderful thing. I did years ago. And I want to tell you, I've never regretted giving my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Never have. But here's what you're probably doing if you're still trembling and aching under your sin and you're keeping your sins from... uh, from, uh, you're keeping your sins from uh, serving God. Your sins are hindering you from uh, abandoning your all to Him, and you're, you're afraid to give yourself fully to Him because of your sins. Here's what you're probably doing. You're probably obsessing and thinking more of your sins than you are the death of Jesus Christ. You see, what God did with Moses is that God led Moses to lead Israel to observe the Passover, which is a preview of the death of Jesus Christ. You see, they would take the blood and they would put it on the doorpost to have everything horizontal covered in their life, and then at the lintel to have everything vertical covered in their life. Ladies and gentlemen, what does that form? So from the very beginning, God is declaring and hinting at a real mild allusion to the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, it says, Christ, our Passover, has been slain. In other words, anything that it takes to get you right with God has already been done by Jesus and certified by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus has bled and He's alive and He's canceling sin and forgiving people all over every day and every moment of every day through the Billy Graham organization about one person a minute every day of every day for now more than 60 years. And that's just one ministry, medium-sized ministry. Think about all the missionaries that cover up the world. Think about all the preachers preaching the good news today. Hey, you can be part of that number to come get some of the grace of God. You can have it. That's what God will do for you. Because Jesus has bled. And he, Moses then did not allow the sins of the past to keep him from the blessing of God's future in his life. And you don't have to either. Hey, let me ask you. Did you see the Billy Graham funeral the other day? Did you watch that? Oh, I did. Millions across the nation and even more around the world were watching it. There was a lot that moved me in that particular funeral, but especially the story of one of his daughters that that I really wasn't aware of. Uh, His wife's name, Billy's wife's name was Ruth, and his daughter's name was Ruth. 
They had a Ruth who was a daughter. And Ruth, after 21 years, had gone through a divorce. And then she rushed quickly back into another marriage against the counsel of her parents. Now, I don't know about you, but if Billy Graham was my dad, I think I'd listen. But she didn't. She didn't listen to her mother. And, and, and they counseled her, why don't you take your time? And she's giving her testimony at this funeral and just being real transparent about her failure. She said, my mother and daddy cautioned me against it. They said, take your time. And my children did not like this man that I was dating. But she said, I rushed headlong into it. I got married, and with 24 hours, I knew it was wrong. She didn't explain how, but she said, I knew it was wrong. And in no time, there was a second divorce in her life. And she said, you know, in my world, you don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And it bothered her. What are people going to think not only about me, but my daddy? What are they going to think? Well, she called them and she started her way home. It was a two-day drive home. And she crossed the country, and Billy lived up on a mountain in uh, North Carolina near Montreat and Black Mountain. And you have to drive up that mountain and cover some winding roads. And you get to the house by covering or driving past one last bend. And she said, I had so many questions in my mind. What are they going to say? How disappointed are they going to be in me? Is this going to be a tough confrontation when I arrive? She said that when she covered that last bend and got up to the gate of the house, there her daddy was standing. And she got out of the car, and he embraced her. And he said, welcome home. And she said, no condemnation, no, cre no recrimination. She said, I know my daddy is not God, but he sure did show me God on that day. And I want to tell you, God is calling you to come. Ruth finished that testimony saying, that invitation is open to you. God is saying, come home. You belong with Him. You don't need to wander any longer. Jesus has provided a way. He's opened the gate. If you'll just round that bend and come in by rejecting your doubt, rejecting your unbelief, and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord you'll be welcomed home by someone who is the God of all. So Moses had a nurturing family. He was a nervous fugitive. But there's a third stage in his life. And that happens to be a national force. Moses became a national force. And, of course, Billy was as well. In fact, he was a global force. He was even a force in Portland, Oregon. A number of decades ago, he did a crusade in Portland, Oregon. And uh, had powerful, powerful results there, even in a place that is as beautiful and yet as secular as Portland, Oregon. Uh, there was a time when uh, some store owners had an unusual day. Uh, one person came in and began to confess, a number of years ago I was in your store and I switched the price tags on some of the clothing and paid a lesser price on the piece I wanted. I'm here to pay the full thing, and if you need to turn me in to the police, please do. Another person came in and confessed to shoplifting. Well, the manager of the store was bumfuzzled. He didn't know what to think. This has never happened before, where people got honest 
in his city. And he asked the security guard, what's going on? And the security guard said, Billy Graham is in town. You see, when Christ comes into your life, He makes a difference. He does those kinds of things. And He makes an enormous change. Listen, do you know something? God intends to use you. You're not intended to be part of a church and sit, soak, and sour. That's not, that's not God's design. God intends for you to serve. And He's got a plan to use you and make you a force. Now, very few will ever have the stature of Billy Graham. Billy was really, frankly, never comfortable with it, to be honest with you. In fact, he felt like a failure. The, the important thing, though, is don't worry about how wide God takes you. Just concern yourself with the depth of your faith and surrender to Him. God can use you. It, it matters no matter your, your family background. It, it matters not your past. It matters not your current challenges in front of you. God can use you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And Paul said that in the context of financial difficulty and challenges, and if he can make it through financial difficulties and challenges, you can make it through anything that you are facing. So Moses became a national force. Look at verse number 29 and how he did. By faith... With Moses' leadership, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. And here's another element of their national force, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Now, historians complain, we don't have any record of the Egyptian army being wiped out. Well, duh, they're not going to tell you. They're not going to record the defeat. My goodness, of course not. That's a great evidence that it happened. And so Moses became a national force that changed the course of a nation and led Israel into the defining event of their history. Listen, every person that God has ever used, every person that God has ever used trusted him and trusted four things about him. One is the truthfulness of his word. They believed his word. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to assure you, I believe every bit of the Bible. I believe everything from the first verse of Genesis to the very last map. And I believe we all should. Uh, and, and believe the entire Bible. Then they believed in the righteousness of His standards. They, they believed in the Ten Commandments. His standards for sexuality. They, they believed in the New Testament pattern for their life and for their church. Then the faithfulness of His promises. God keeps His promises. If you were to call on the Lord today, He would save you. If you would come to him, he promises he would save. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be hesitant. It would not be an awkward thing for him. It might be for you, but it sure wouldn't be for him. God would save, and he loves to answer prayer. Now, Billy talked about this as well. He said, I never pray on the golf course. The Lord hears my prayers and answers them everywhere except the golf course. Well, there's no promise in the Bible. Uh, about what takes place on the golf course, okay? But the truth is, is that he, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Then the goodness of his will. You've got to believe that what he wants of your life and what he planned for it is a good thing. Trust him and he will use you. Gladys, Gladys Elward happened to be a person like that. She was a British missionary to China and she served there for uh, many, many years. Right before World War II, the Japanese invaded China and began to chase Gladys and her little orphanage uh, throughout the country. They had to climb a steep mountain to get to safety in another city, 
And she had to lead a hundred children over this mountain. It was daunting. It was difficult. They got up the mountain and she got very, very discouraged. And a little girl said to her, don't be discouraged. If God led Israel, if Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, you can lead us to safety. And Gladys said, I'm not Moses. And the 13-year-old girl said, no, but God is God. The God that led Moses, the God that blessed David, the God that raised Jesus from the dead and sent him in the first place, and the God that had his hand on the Apostle Paul and every great Christian since then is the God who can use you. There is nothing but a lack of faith to keep you from being used of God. And if you have just faith that is as small as a mustard seed, you can start moving mountains. Now, we hope it'll grow, but Jesus Christ said, expect great things, even if you've got just a little trust in me. Expect great things. So the truth is, nothing of God has changed. Nothing at all. He's the same God here as he was beside the Red Sea. And he is perfectly prepared to stare down and handle your crocodiles, your pharaohs, your sins, and your Red Seas, and anything that stands in the way. He is that good to you. And Romans 2.4 says it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. God has been exceptionally good to you. And that should move you to turn away from a life without Him and to turn and fully embrace Jesus Christ. Listen, if you'll realize and just confess you've not trusted God, and if you're willing to break from your doubt, you may come to Him today through Jesus Christ, and I want to pray with you that you'll do so.